Welcome to BIB Today, where the daily business news podcast from Business and Vancouver newspaper and BIB.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Tyler Orton. We're going to start the day off with a look at the current state of Lululemon, the Vancouver-based athletic clothing company. It's been without a CEO for months now, and founder Chip Wilson has written up a particularly cutting critique of the company for RetailInsider.com. Retail Insider's Craig Patterson, he's going to join us in a moment to discuss Wilson's take on the future of Lululemon. And with the World Cup starting this week, we know many people are going to be placing wagers on the matchups. One Vancouver company is hoping to capitalize on the demand for these office pools, and there are many of them. Jamie Tatsubano from Footy Stats is going to join us soon. But first, let's start with Craig Patterson from Retail Insider. U.S. President Donald Trump's historic meeting with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has wrapped up in Singapore. The two leaders have made a pledge for peace, but details are still sparse right now. So what can we really expect to come out of this meeting? Joining us today to lend his insights, it is Yves Tybergen. He is the Director Emeritus of the Institute of Asian Research at the University of British Columbia. Eve, thanks for joining us on the show today. Hello, it's a great pleasure being here. Well, help us understand this, Eve. Uh, what's happened here in the last 24 hours? Yes, so uh, something pretty amazing when we remember last year, last summer, uh, with the threats of fire in Chile and uh, in the fall when three aircraft carriers from the U.S. were sailing around Korea and we're ready to bomb North Korea. And now here we are. We had uh, happy handshakes, big grins by Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump as if they were, you know, kindergarten friends reunited again and big you know hugs and holding each other not quite hugs but holding each other's shoulders and arms pretty remarkable scene we see that trump was showering a lot of praise on kim jong-un i'm just wondering what did korea exactly or north korea really have to give up to get this recognition on the world stage from what is the biggest power across the globe yes so in terms of the praise that's right uh Donald Trump was saying that not only did he not need to prepare for the meeting, it was all about attitude. He also said that he can assess a person in the first five seconds. And later he said, actually, the first one second. And he came out saying, well, actually, I get along with him very well. I liked him from the start. He's a great guy, very talented, very smart. Uh, so that was that. But yeah, what did uh, North Korea give? Well, uh, they, in, the, in the final declaration, there's only four points there. And one of the four points uh, says that North Korea will denuclearize. But there is no particular timetable, no particular concrete statements about it. Uh, so it's a general statement. Uh, in, in the short term, Donald Trump gave more than North Korea. Uh, but if we believe, no, if we believe no, Donald Trump, uh, there is a very good process that's beginning. And so there is supposedly a series of meetings now that will start for the concrete action plan. Did Donald Trump raise expectations unduly, do you think, with the American people about what to expect from one meeting? Well, initially, you know, when things started a couple of months ago, uh, the bar was set very high. You know, there was the expectation of a, of a commitment of complete denuclearization in the short term, fast, etc. And then in the last two weeks, uh, Donald Trump backpedaled. And he said, well, it's going to be a process. And it's not just one meeting. We're going to need many meetings. It's going to be a long process. So by that backpedaling, 
set of declarations, then you know the meeting in a way was uh, was equal to expectations. But still, many people are looking at the outcome and saying, "Hey, it's not very much for a big meeting." Twenty five hundred journalists flew over. They flew over, but their expectation might have been that we were going to see something akin to a um, a legible document that was going to spell out things like the process of reducing or eliminating nuclear armaments in North Korea and a verification process. What What's happened here? Um, yeah, so it's not in the declaration that there's no such thing. And when Donald Trump was asked in the press conference, he said, oh, there was no time, uh, but he's going to come. So, I mean, in some ways it's realistic. Uh, with uh, people like, like Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump, everything has to start first in a sort of mutual trust. Uh, and it's true that the rest of the work is very, very complicated and will take a while, uh, but it's not done. So at this point, nothing is done. Uh, just there's an opening to start those negotiations. Yeah, the joint statement is interesting because after they had the press conference, Donald Trump said that he's offering to take those joint war games that the United States and South Korea share. Uh, what is the response likely right now from the South Koreans that this is on the table? It wasn't included in the joint declaration, but Donald Trump has put it out there at this point. Um, well, on the South Korean side, uh, so far, the, the mood is quite positive and they are quite responsive, right? They at least uh, the South Korean president right now, Moon Jae-in, uh, was not, you know, was not very warm about the escalation of military posturing and about the exercises. He, he, he did think himself that it was good to uh, tone them down or freeze them in the short term. The conservative uh, branch, uh, the conservative parties in South Korea, are not of that mood. So they will be critical. They will go after Moon Jae-in. But President Moon is on side with this. Uh, and in a way, what Donald Trump accepted is the freeze for freeze proposal that came out of China, but was sort of endorsed by South Korea. So that part, uh, in, if, any, if anything, it opens up space for, uh, for negotiations. And it's not difficult to bring them back next year if things don't go well. Yeah, was this almost like an episode of reality TV here, with where it's the relationship between these two leaders no matter that there isn't a whole lot of substance in behind their meeting, that that matters more than anything else to the world stage? <laughs> it, was, it was reality TV, right? Lots of posturing, lots of intense physical confrontation. I mean, they also try on each other the big handshake, uh, yep. like Macron and Trump, right? So they try yep. to give each other a numb hand. So there's a lot of that going on. Uh, but maybe it's unavoidable. I mean, given the two personalities that we have here and the sort of very centralized regime in North Korea, and to some extent the situation now in the U.S., uh, this was the first step that was necessary uh, for the rest to move forward. So we have an option for the rest. It's not by no means guaranteed that anything will proceed, but at least we have a good opening now. Well, on a hypothetical basis, and let's say we're at the sapling stage of a growing relationship that could get into like a big oak tree at a certain point here. But do you see a situation where Canada and South and North Korea could realistically have like economic relations with each other? What kind of opportunities could potentially come down the road 10, 20 years from now? Oh, yeah, the opportunities are very large, right? 
because if the process goes forward uh, and there are concrete steps with denuclearization and uh, removal of missiles, then there would be normalization of diplomatic relations between the U.S. and North Korea, which then will open the door for normalized relations for everybody else. There will be an open-up uh, of trade, and in turn, that will open up many opportunities for Canada, as well as South Korea, Japan, etc. I mean, Trump actually even showed pictures and showed a vision to uh, Kim Jong-un and say, look, you know, you have this beautiful beach. If you stop bombing it and using it to train your, your, your guns, you can have beautiful hotels. You can That's have right. markets here. You can develop. And so there's I see lots a, of openings. I see a Trump Tower on the beach. <laughs> I see another right, Trump, Trump Tower. Tower. I see. But it, doesn't it say something unusual about this world that Donald Trump appears now to have a better relationship with an authoritarian dictator than he does with his closest Democrat neighbor. Yes, uh, it's an extremely striking contrast after the G7. And actually on the same day, while he was praising Kim Jong-un and praising Xi Jinping, he praised Xi Jinping more than Moon and Abe, for example, in the press conference. Uh, he was still bashing uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Uh, and so, yes, there is something very odd here. Uh, and, well, I mean, all of it is short-term. We have to see what holds on. I know that the U.S. system will constrain Donald Trump. But, yeah, it's very odd about the character. Very unusual for an American president. Well, we were debating this earlier on the week, Kirk, about how much of that was just posturing on the part of Donald Trump when he departed from the G7. Now they had the meeting with Kim Jong-un. It doesn't appear that Justin Trudeau's so-called stab in the back, special place in hell discussion <laughs> had any bearing at all yeah. on the way his meeting with Kim Jong-un went. So, Eve, what actually comes next for Canada and the United States at this point after this very high profile, intense meeting in Singapore? Yeah, what comes next? That's um, Well, in terms of the North Korea-U.S. relationship, we know the next step is Mike Pompeo uh, working with the North Korean side. It's already mandated in a declaration. Uh, so presumably they're going to meet very soon, within a week or two. Uh, and hopefully North Korea will be willing to move concretely on some of the implementation and then that will allow to have another summit maybe in Washington and then eventually a third summit in Pyongyang so they have opened up all those possibilities but if North Korea doesn't deliver in the next stages then all this could kind of fall like a souffle. Yeah we haven't paid a lot of attention in this country to the South Korean influence and the changing nature of this relationship between uh, the West and North Korea. But is one of the important steps here in the next while the official cessation of the Korean War, the actual declaration of its end? Yeah, absolutely. So that's one of the points, in a way, mentioned. Uh, one of the four points is to have a process leading to the end of the war and a formal peace treaty, which would be, which would be enormous, right? It would be a massive thing. Um, while South Korea has been the real mover behind this whole process, right? If there was a Nobel Peace Prize, the yes. number one person who should get it is Moon Jae-in. Moon Jae-in. Uh, he's been the one pushing every step and preparing all those processes, and he's the one who has moved on the potential peace. Uh, and it's true that there was, in a way, a very harsh position by conservatives on all sides that, that was uh, freezing this kind of war situation since 1953. And it sort of makes sense to try to move beyond it. 
But we'll have to see whether uh, North Korea is willing to, to really undo some of its military establishment and take a bet on the opening up. Yeah. It's, it's possible, but it's not at no means guaranteed. <laughs> Well, the South Korean leader, of course, uh, is is a worthy uh, nominee for the Nobel. But I, I, I can just imagine the body language if he happens to share this with Donald Trump in the acceptance speeches at the at the Nobel Academy. I might, think might be a little awkward. You say? I I think he he better get his elbows up. Because I think <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, Donald Trump is is a showman. He's a TV guy, so he's. I mean, I'm pretty sure he's gunning for it. And yeah. so he's willing to go much further than anyone else because, in a way, if he delivers a real peace agreement with North Korea, this is going to have a bigger impact in historical terms or in you know TV rating terms than anything else he does. Yeah, uh, and, and and I think he's sore that Barack Obama got one. That, that was an interesting choice because I don't yeah. even think Barack Obama had been inaugurated no. at that point. Yeah. Barack Obama seemed to get like a preemptive one exactly and donald trump donald trump's gonna have to work for his yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's right right yeah the lesson has been learned <laughs> so well eve yeah. uh hopefully our next conversation will not be about how this deal all just fell apart uh, but we'd like you to come back anytime and just give us more information as this continues to update here sure yeah this is going to be an unfolding story and it's going to be very exciting for the coming months Absolutely. Thank you, Eve. That's Eve Tybergen. He is the Director Emeritus of the Institute of Asian Research at the University of British Columbia. So stay with us. Craig Patterson from Retail Insider is going to join us next. Lululemon founder Chip Wilson. He's never been one to hold back about the direction of his Vancouver-based athletic clothing company. In an editorial penned this week for RetailInsider.com, the Vancouver businessman, he doesn't hold back at all. And joining us today to discuss the current state of Lululemon, as well as some of the other big stories making waves in retail, it is Craig Patterson. He's the editor-in-chief at Retail Insider. Craig, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. Did you just get a call from Chip to say, hey, listen, I've got something to get off my chest here. And uh, do, you have, do you got a platform for me? Yeah, well, sort of. Um, you know, it was through uh, a pub, you know, publicist, which his son actually uh, co-founded the company. It's I think it's called The Very Polite Agency, which is a terrific name. Very nice people there. So I suppose they live up to that name. Um, but yes, no, uh, Chip has uh, submitted an article. It is a bit, you know, critical of Lululemon. It uh, talks about the future of uh, of brands and retail. And then it, you know, makes an interesting prediction at the end that, uh, you know, we'll all be wearing uh, clothing that, you know, maybe a bit uh, space-aged. <laughs> yeah, he said uh, he, he figures in a few years we'll all be wearing Star Trek jumpsuits, which is an interesting thing. But uh, everything will be 3D printed, skin tight. I, I'm not sure how fashionable that's necessarily going to be, though. Do Craig. we really want skin tight stuff I, all the time? For myself, no, not, yeah. not at all. Yeah. But uh, what about you, Craig? <laughs> where, where do you see fashion heading? You know, it's interesting because that prediction would, you know, be the, you know, unless you can, you know, buy your Valentino jumpsuit or, you know, depending if there's different price levels, it would certainly be the end of traditional, you know, fashion. I mean, yeah. you go to, you, I mean, if you look up, say, Robson Street, you just got a big whole bunch of stores. You go off Robson, there's even more stores and they're all selling clothing. I mean, what is the future of that if we're all wearing space age jumpsuits so you know we're we're able to you know uh, have a chip embedded in us that will you know uh, tell us that we need to eat or drink water i don't know i mean the future is going to be interesting but but it's also you know 
a lot of unknowns. But but this prediction that he has, it actually ties into one of the points that he's making throughout this editorial here, which is that Lululemon, he does not believe that it is innovating enough anymore, that, that it's kind of lost its direction to a certain degree. Tell us a little bit about Wilson's thoughts on maybe how the company has kind of lost its way over the years. I think he's frustrated. I mean, that was his baby. He started it, right? And um, he's got a lot of ideas. I mean, I think Chip Wilson's brilliant. You know, he's come up with some really uh, uh, innovative concepts over the years. And, you know, Lululemon, you know, is probably the, well, it would be the best known. And, um, you know, I mean, there's been some struggles with Kit and Ace and whatnot. But really, you know, I think that he's he's one of those people who, you know, has incredible leadership skills as well as an incredible vision. And I think that he's looking at, you know, this is like a child that's gone astray. And I think he's, looking at it and saying, look, you can do better, shape up. And he's frustrated because, you know, his kid isn't listening. And in this case, you know, we're talking about the board and him not being able to ask questions to, you know, the degree that he wants, despite being the biggest shareholder. So but if he was, uh, I can't imagine how frustrating this must be. Okay. I can understand the frustration, but isn't he a bit of the author of his own misfortune with his company? A bit, sorry, I couldn't quite hear that. He's, isn't he a bit of a, an author of his own misfortune? in all these circumstances. He he had an opportunity to keep this company. He let it slip through his fingers. It's tricky. I mean, a lot of stuff happened, I guess you would say. And uh, I suppose to a degree, yes. I mean, but but nevertheless, you know, a, a company at this time, day and age of retail needs to innovate. And, um, you, you know, whether or not he's involved in it, I mean, for the company to, I think, progress, you know, be it with competition, there are a lot of companies that are looking at Lululemon right now and saying that they can do it better. And whether or not they can actually do it better, uh, you know, that's up to debate. But nevertheless, uh, there's a lot of copycats out there, uh, you know, in, in all industries, you know, be it designer bags, be it, uh, you know, Miniso knocking off uh, Muji and Uniqlo, allegedly. You know, there's a lot of groups and they see something and they think they can do it better. You know, Dyson might be a good example of that. And I don't know. I mean, maybe Dyson will come in and do Lululemon, you know, Lululemon-esque fashions. And uh, in that case, you know, Lululemon could be put by the wayside. There is that risk. Well, do you think he's gunning at all for that CEO job that's been vacant for a few months? It is, you know, <laughs> a lot of people are on tenterhooks waiting. Stranger to... things have happened in yeah. terms of, uh, uh, you know, reconstitution of an executive. Although I, I just wonder about his relationship with the board at this point. <clears throat> and, and that's, I, I think, probably the, the biggest stumbling block for him to reenter the company. But what's your take on the search for the CEO, Craig? Oh, my goodness. I mean, it, it's kind of a wait and see. I think that recruiting externally would be a challenge just given the over the uh, uh you know the, the turnover and how uh, uh you know le- the, you know, the leadership history of the company they may you know we've had i, I was talking to suzanne Sears. she's a recruiter she would know a lot more than i would she was saying you know that they would probably have to hire internally at this point and uh, wow. uh you know that that's sort of how it would have to work there as a recruiter she was saying that it would be quite challenging to have someone that you know without a lot of money would be willing to go there and, you know, they may have to relocate to Vancouver. This uh, CEO could live in a different city if they were uh, recruited. And, and, you know, that's a bigger risk because a person might be moving their family to a city that's extremely expensive. <laughs> I'm sure they could uh, get a good uh, salary from uh, Lululemon. But uh, he, he does bring something up, though, about like Vancouver is actually probably a good position for a company like this versus, say, Adidas, which is in the middle of nowhere in Germany. It's a very small rural town there. You look at Under Armour, which is based in Baltimore, and maybe doesn't have the international intrigue that, say, Vancouver does. Do you think that we are having a tough time recruiting people just because of the cost of living here? 
I think that the cost of living is a little bit prohibitive, but uh, Chip brought up something really interesting in that article. To me, that was one of the most interesting parts of the article, um, where he, you know, said that you know Vancouver is a great place in many ways to run a business and to find and attract talent. Um, talent isn't always concerned with cost of living, especially younger people. They're, um, you know, willing to shack up, you know, a few people to an apartment in the West End if they have to, you know, and uh, they're willing to do that just to live in Vancouver. That goes for other cities as well. I mean, Google bought buildings in Manhattan and, you know, are employing lots of people. And, you know, there are young people. They, they don't care about, you know, having a, a house with a yard and kids. And that's, you know, not the target that they're, they have. So he talked about, he said Baltimore was an uninspiring city. I don't, I didn't disagree with anything that he said. Um, we are seeing a movement right now towards, you know, corporate headquarters being in interesting areas. McDonald's, as an example, in Chicago is moving their headquarters, you know, into the inner city from, you know, a far-flung suburban office park, I guess you would say. And uh, I think that a lot of talent now is looking at having, you know, an interesting fun life, and that involves being in an urban center. And that's something that Vancouver really has as an advantage, you know, not to mention its weather, you know, beautiful scenery, et cetera. I mean, Vancouver is a... Is a one of the best cities in the world to live in and work in. And, and, and you can read business in Vancouver every oh, week. Exactly. Or, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Best access. Forgot, forgot to mention well, yeah, that. I mean, yeah. Yeah. You got it to Vancouver. I mean, it, it really is a special city. I mean, and Canada is a special country. You know, it's it, very lucky to have these places. I mean, you go to, uh, you know, many cities around the world and you know, they're very, very envious of Vancouver, um, even cities that are quite close by. Well, and, we, and we don't get pushed around. <laughs> well, heard, we're Canadians. Heard, yeah, we're Canadians. Yeah. We're polite. Well, yeah. one of the other things that we always see around Vancouver, in addition to Lululemon stores, are Starbucks. And, of course, those Starbucks Canada employees, they went through anti-racial bias training this week. But, Craig, on Retail Insider, you guys are talking about how this is an issue that it's not affecting just Starbucks. It's across the retail industry. Tell me a little bit about why this is a sector that is still coming to grips with a lot of the racial biases that maybe underline a lot of society. Yeah, and this is very much a societal question. I, I do think that, you know, we've been brought up with certain biases. And, uh, you know, in my, I have a personal perspective. I mean, we'll all have personal perspectives based on how we were raised. And I was raised in a somewhat racist part of northern Alberta. And, you know, I, <laughs> I, I try to be somewhat open about that. But even our teachers, you know, said that, you know, the Aboriginal kids were thieves. Like, these are actually things that were, you know, said in school. And I know that was, you know, about 35 years ago now. But um, nevertheless, I don't know if <laughs> I don't know if a two-hour training is going to uh, you know instill a neutrality that may be innate uh, to a person uh, you know throughout their lifetime. I mean, I, however, I do think that the effort is very commendable, and I think the messaging is right on uh, uh, right on point. I'm just not sure if it was practical or even that useful. But doesn't it send the signal properly to employees to say, look, we uh, on the basis of this episode. Uh, it brought this to a head in Philadelphia for the entire company, and we're going to take it seriously. And given that we're taking it seriously, you as an employee had better take it seriously. We're, there will be no tolerance around this any longer. I think so. I mean, I think at this point, uh, something like what they did was you know, necessary. I mean, getting that messaging out there, whether or not it has any useful effect you know that's that's a whole other story but i think that that messaging right there you know the cost of uh, doing business here i think was necessary uh, in terms of shutting those down and doing this i think that you know i i've seen people in social media going out and saying that you know they've given up on starbucks because it's racist and 
I think that's crazy. And I shouldn't say that because these are personal friends that have said this. I was a little disappointed when I saw such comments because I don't think a multi-billion dollar company is racist. I mean, it's probably quite the opposite. The diversity that Starbucks embraces, you know, be it LGBT events or otherwise, is, is tremendous. I don't think that Starbucks is, you know, in any way a, a large <laughs> racist organization. But to hear comments like that were quite shocking. And I think that this, uh, you know, uh, bias training that we've uh, seen here in Canada and the United States week before last, you know, I think that, you know, it, it was a very good PR move, let's put it that way. Well, it, the one thing that I, I wonder about too is, and, and again, uh, go back to where Chip Wilson, I thought was the author of his own misfortune with his company, but uh, Starbucks actually almost brought on the culture that led to this horrible incident in Philadelphia. Because let's face it, by virtue of having Wi-Fi in their place, they were the first ones that really started to encourage people to come and sit down and stay and stay and stay yeah. um, to have a coffee or sometimes nothing, sometimes a glass of water. It, it's a local hangout spot. Where- it's become, yeah, it's, it's like the new library. Right. So uh, in a way, if you're going to encourage that, then you have to have uh, absolute tolerance around who is going to be in your place because you're, you're essentially giving them all the facilities to, to hang out. It's, you know, they're, they're not trying to move people out in a half hour the way that a lot of other places are. No, they probably should. But, right, <laughs> you know, yeah. to do business, I mean, uh, how much does a, does a cup of coffee cost? It's, you say three bucks, we'll just throw that in for a, a larger, you know, roast coffee that I would get. I think about $3 is the price. Um, you know, you got to be drinking a few of those just to, you know, make your time worthwhile, you know, on, on the real estate that Starbucks might operate because, you know, they're paying some pretty high rents in some locations. So they need to do volume. And because they're not selling $10,000 coffees, you know, they have to sell a lot of stuff to pay their rent, basically, you'd say. So, um, but it's interesting you bring it up because I remember years ago in Vancouver, uh, in International Village, um, I'd asked why they had, I think they had, no, no, no. I know what it was. They took out the blue lighting because what they had in the washrooms was lighting so that people couldn't see their veins to um, put syringes on their arms, you know, to do drugs. And uh, mm. however, they had syringe boxes in the washroom. And I was told that at that Starbucks, um, they would not say no to anyone using the washroom. So, you know, they were prepared, given that the downtown east side was nearby for people to be doing drugs in the washroom. So I found out about this Philadelphia situation and that, you know, they didn't have a policy around washrooms. I honestly assume that they did have a policy that anyone could use them for anything, unfortunately, perhaps. I I also wonder if there's a broader issue because we look at, just beyond the Starbucks issue, though, we, we look at, say, those stories with regards to, say, Canadian Tire or the Tiger Department Store, where People of you know indigenous descent that they are being profiled and they're being followed yeah. and followed and it's I think it goes beyond just Starbucks which actually is making an effort to change things here and I, I just wonder how much this has to come down to different attitudes within just even loss prevention departments, Craig. It's tricky because you know retailers it's, it's a big complicated business. You've got. Um, you know, everything from ordering uh, product to, you know, the retail strategy, you know, and there's the whole struggle of hiring people. Um, now comes the struggle of hiring people, you know, be it third-party um, security guards or, uh, you know, staff within the store who aren't going to be racist. I mean, it's, it's, it's tough because how do you screen for this? And then how do you, um, you know, within your company, 
you know, try to prohibit it. And then, you know, there are biases that people have. I mean, in and of itself, you know, if you find someone shoplifting, it's going to create a bias, I think. You know, you're going to see that. But, you know, the problem I think comes when you start replicating that and saying, well, you know, a, a, a black person stole something from the store last week, so therefore this other person might do it as well. I mean, that's not good. You know, that that's not, you know, but that is that is a type of profiling and it's probably a silly profiling. You know, it's it's probably irrelevant and quite racist. But nevertheless, you know, this is, I think, you know, humans do have a tendency towards a bias and have to be conscious against that. And I think that goes for almost everyone right now. Okay, uh, we got to wrap it up. But uh, just very quickly, Craig, we do want to touch on this issue just with regards to tariffs being introduced here uh, as of July 1st. There's a whole lot of consumer products coming in for the United States. Are retailers prepared for higher costs? Are consumers prepared possibly for higher costs for these products coming up from the United States in the next few weeks, Craig? We're in an interesting time. I mean, I hope cooler heads prevail. But, you know, saying that we are going to be seeing these tariffs, I mean, yeah, I, I think that, you know, retailers, first of all, are going to take a bit of a hit because consumers, you know, and they, again, these are obviously areas where there's going to be an increase in cost, you know, direct, directly related to the tariffs or, you know, indirectly, but quite quickly. Um, you know, first, retailers are going to take a hit. Uh, you know, they're going to have to try to raise prices as much as they can, you know, on these products, which we're talking about. And um, then, you know, consumers are going to be hit. And and I can't, I, you know, it's funny, I was thinking about this last night before bed, and I was thinking, what are consumers going to say, you know, be it in Canada or the United States, depending, you know, where the, where the tariffs lie and what products we're talking about, you know, how are they going to, at the end of the day, say, holy cow, like, you know, what's the point of this? Why am I paying 25% or more for certain things that I wasn't before just because of this, you know, petty argument based on facts, which may actually be even incorrect. In fact, the, I think they are. And the difference is, I think that Canadians are going to feel the pinch faster than Americans. Correct. Yeah. Because of the tariffs. We really are do. On. Yeah. The, <laughs> we you know, really do. Yeah, I mean, we're we're facing it on manufactured goods. The Americans are going to face it on raw materials. Yeah, so uh, it's going to be an interesting time coming up, Craig, and uh, we'll be picking your brain for the next couple of weeks and months about this. But I want to thank you for joining us on the program today. Thank you for having me. That's Craig Patterson. He's the editor-in-chief at RetailInsider.com. Next up, Jamie Tatsubano from Footy Stats is going to talk to us about his analytics to help us navigate the World Cup. <laughs> 